You think you know what we're going to talk about. And welcome back to Three Fates Decide. It just sounds more dramatic that way. All right. So this week we are going to be talking about... But just when you least expect it, we changed the game. One Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I mean, we always celebrated Easter. You're part of the Half-Blood Prince. So we're going to do another free talk, freestyle thing. No planned discussion. At the end of the day, only one thing matters. We decide. We're going to hit the, the, the main highlight. That is the thing that we were saying back in that episode. Quick recap. Three Fates Decide podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Three Fates Decide. My name is Mary, I'm with my two co-hosts, Sam and Liz. Say hi ladies. Hi-o. Hello. All right. Today we are going to be talking about another American monster. It would be the most apt name for this man. This man being Ted Bundy, one of the most prolific serial killers America's had in the last, probably what, century? Yeah, probably. I mean, I know we've had a few, but he's probably one of the more, besides Dahmer, who we've already spoken about in a previous episode, Liz may be able to tell us which episodes those were, because we spoke about him twice. I don't remember now. There was one episode, number 66, and then there was number 78, which I believe okay. is the one about the Netflix mm-hmm. series. I think it is. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think we did him first and then the series. Exactly. Well, tonight we are not going to be breaking up this into two episodes. We are going to briefly talk about who he was, his childhood, briefly talk about the Areas in years he was active and the victims that are confirmed. A few of the ones that were suspected, the one that got away that actually ended up being how he got caught. And then we will talk about the Netflix movie, which is based on a memoir by an ex-girlfriend of his. The movie is called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, based on the book by his former girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall, The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy. We will talk about both. As we go, just major uh, trigger warning, even though we're going to try not to get graphic, just in case that it ever slips out. Just if you don't like hearing about this stuff or anything like that, might not be the episode for you. But we're going to try not to go into graphic details, but I feel just in case (laughs) we'll, uh, we'll put that out there. But okay, we will try not to go too graphically into detail. But unfortunately, it's hard not to, especially talking about somebody like this. You have to get graphic with it mm-hmm. in a way. Nasty. Uh, yes. If our feelings on Dahmer were not clear, our feelings on Bundy are about the same, if not worse. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Bundy, otherwise known as Theodore Robert Howell Bundy, was born in 1946. He died in 1989, so he is no longer among the living thank god (laughs) the one thing florida did right right this is about the only thing florida's done right he was born in vermont to a single mother eleanor louise cowell he was actually born at the elizabeth lund home for unwed mothers never knew who his father was there's been i guess you could say there have been many guesses but no nobody has ever stepped forth Claiming to be his father, and I don't blame them <laughs> if they even knew. Seriously, would you want to claim him? Nope. Yes. No. For the first three years of his life, he did live in Philadelphia. 
the Roxborough neighborhood with his maternal grandparents, Simon and Eleanor Miriam. And they raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied him being born to an unwed mother at the time. He did express a lifelong resentment towards his mother for never talking to him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true parentage for himself as he grew older. He exhibited disturbing behavior at an extremely early age. He surrounded his aunt. Mm -hmm. Yes, his aunt with knives from the kitchen at the age of three. A childhood neighbor described him as a bully, saying he liked to terrify people. He liked to be in charge. He liked to inflict pain and suffering and fear. Yeah. 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 But he loved his grandparents. Yes, he did. He spoke very warmly of his grandparents. He said that he identified and respected and clung to his grandfather. Although in 1987, he and other family told their attorneys that his grandfather, Samuel, was was a tyrannical bully who beat his wife and dog, exhibited bigotry, including religious intolerance, racism, and xenophobia, and swung neighborhood cats by their tails. Yeah. Not the cats or the dog. I know. Or the wife, my God. I mean, yeah, obviously that too, but. Yeah, but I'm like you, Sam, as horrified as I am about the wife, but I'm like, not the dog and the cat. There are times, I admit, I love animals more than I do people. Mm -hmm. I admit that all the time. There are just some days. All right. Uh, hmm. He described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for depression, ECT, shock therapy. Gee. Yeah. In 1951, his mother met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, and they married that year, and he officially and formally adopted Ted. So that is how his name went from being Cal to Bundy. In 1951, so. Yeah, that was after they moved to Tacoma, Washington. Yes. And he didn't like his stepdad, or I guess his adopted dad. Adopted dad. Yeah. What are you going to do? Well, there's not much he could do at that time. Nope. All right. Kind of moving on. The only really thing that he did was during high school, he was arrested twice on suspicion of burglary and motor vehicle theft. When he reached the age of 18, the details of the incidents were expunged from his record. So it's like it never happened. He was an alcoholic and a peeping Tom because he would consume large quantities of alcohol and canvas the community, looking for undraped windows where he could observe women undressing. Let's see. Sam, you want to take over for a little bit? Yep, I got you. Okay. All right. Also, the other thing, like, with high school was it didn't seem like he really liked a lot of people, but everyone always said that he was well-known and well-liked. So he, he just liked to be alone. But after he graduated high school, he went to the University of Puget Sound, and then he transferred to the University of Washington to study Chinese. And uh, while there, he started dating someone, Diane Edwards, who I think was probably like the love of his life. He wound up dropping out of college. He was doing a lot of minimum wage jobs. He volunteered at the Seattle office for uh, Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. He became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for lieutenant governor of Washington state. Meanwhile, his girlfriend had graduated and left for San Francisco. He would visit her there during that summer of 1968 because he had gotten the scholarship for Stanford University to study Chinese. In August of 1968, he attended the Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. So he did a lot with politics. But not long after his girlfriend broke up with him because she just thought he was immature and lacked ambition. And a psychiatrist would later pinpoint that was a pivotal time in his development because he was absolutely devastated. So after that, Bundy traveled to Colorado 
and then further east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia. He enrolled for one semester at Temple University, and I guess a friend from his childhood thinks that during that trip was when he found his birth records and found out who his actual father was. So even though no one has claimed him, he, I guess, feels like he found who his father was. But anyway, so he went back to Washington, and that's when he met Elizabeth Kendall, whose real name is Elizabeth Klopfer. So she's identified as multiple names, but on her book, her name is Elizabeth Kendall. So she was a single mother. She worked for the University of Washington School of Medicine, and their relationship continued well past his initial incarceration and all that. He became a father figure to her daughter, Molly, who was three when they started dating and when the relationship was over, she was 10. Molly actually wrote of incidences when she turned seven. Bundy was abusive to her and sexually inappropriate to her. She mentioned that he hit her in the face, knocked her down, put her at risk of drowning in decent exposure and sexual touching disguised as accidents or games, which if you look up what he did to his victims, it doesn't surprise me. At all. I was just going to say, hearing that is disgusting as it makes me and as angry as it makes me and it makes me want to kill him again. <laughs> find his grave, dig him up, bring his ass back to life just yeah. to kill him again. Exactly. Slowly. <laughs> I, oh. Oh. Yeah. It's not surprising, yeah. though. That's the sad part. It doesn't surprise me, but it still pisses me off. Yep. <clears throat> he eventually did re-enroll at the University of Washington as a psychology major. He became an honor student. His professors loved him. He also took a job with Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. And a former police officer who he worked with, who was also an aspiring crime writer, wrote um, one of the biographies about Ted Bundy called The Stranger Beside Me. And she said at the time she never thought anything about Bundy's personality being any kind of disturbing or anything. She thought he was very kind and empathetic and just a normal guy. So he really had the world fooled. But after graduating, he joined Governor Daniel Evans' re-election campaign. And through basically his connections politically from various governors, ex-governors and all that stuff, he actually got into the University of Utah, even though his LSAT score was not very good. But because of all the recommendations from his political people, he got into the University of Utah for law school. During a trip to California on the Republican Party business in the summer of 73, he rekindled his relationship with his with the love of his life, his previous girlfriend, and he was seeing her and Liz Kendall at the same time, and apparently neither of them knew, but whatever. And then he would have the, his old girlfriend fly to Seattle to see him. They discussed marriage. He introduced her as his fiance, and then one day he just stopped talking talking to her stopped answering her calls her letters whatever she finally got him on the phone one time was like what the heck like why'd you do that and he was like i have no idea what you mean and he hung up and she never heard from him again so she thinks it was probably a planned thing that he could get back at her but it seemed to be that when he broke it off with her he was still going with elizabeth kendall but when he broke it up with her he started skipping classes at law school and then uh, a little bit later, he stopped attending entirely, and that's when a lot of young women began disappearing in the Pacific Northwest. So that brings us to his murders. So unfortunately, there's no consensus as to when he started doing this. They don't know if he started doing it 
when he was in high school, when he was in college, he's told people so many different things that, you know, no one knows which way is up. He's mentioned that his first time he ever attempted to kidnap someone was in Ocean City, New Jersey, but he didn't kill anybody until 1971 in Seattle. But then he told someone else that he killed two women in Atlantic City while visiting family in Philly in 1969. He was all over the place, so they really don't know when this started. But the earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27. But by his own admission, he had already mastered the necessary skills that he needed to do this. And this was before the era of DNA profiling, okay? This was the 70s, 60s, 70s. So he was able to do things and not leave. He only left minimal incriminating forensic evidence at the crime scene. So he knew how to clean himself up so that no one could find him. And that's the scary part. Which is unfortunately why he was able to do so many. So his first kind of series of confirmed murders started in 1974. And he focused a lot, I believe, on like college students, young college students. He seemed to have the same MO where he would bludgeon them. The first one, he beat her unconscious, and he sexually assaulted her with the rod that he most likely beat her with. And she was unconscious for several days, but she survived, but she had physical disabilities. And then he broke into another undergraduate of the University of Washington. He beat her unconscious, dressed her up in clothes, and then carried her away, which is weird. That is weird. He just continued going after these college girls. And it wasn't just the University of Washington. He would travel like hundreds of miles sometimes, 110 miles. I think there was yeah, 260 miles all to these different universities between Washington and Oregon. And they said that it had gotten to the point that it was like once a month, someone would go missing. And it all seemed to be the same thing. He would be spotted asking for people for help where he would have a sling or he would have crutches and a cast and it was always he needed someone to help him put something in his tan or brown ew bug Mm. yeah it literally was just the same Mm. thing over and over which was his mess up and then elizabeth i guess writing her when he was in prison at the very end and he did admit to some of his killings i guess to her or whatever but anyway there also the other thing that is gross is he would bring these women to secluded areas and he would come back he would do sexual acts with their corpses after he would decapitate them and whatever and he would come back multiple days until the animals had destroyed the body so much that he couldn't do anything else yes Ugh. and that's it just yeah just absolutely disgusting So one famous one that people talked about whenever I would watch like a documentary on Ted Bundy was the Lake Sammamish State Park. And four female witnesses at the time described an attractive young man wearing white tennis outfit with his arm in a sling, speaking in an accent. They thought maybe Canadian or British. And he would introduce himself as Ted and was asking women to come and help him take a boat out of his Volkswagen Beetle. And three refused. One went with him to his car, saw there was no boat and fled. And then unfortunately, two women were not so lucky and they never returned. And I don't believe they ever found 
their bodies either. But because so many people saw him, they had a sketch as to what this murderer looked like. And because of that, they were able to put it out. And his girlfriend, his childhood friend, and then the ex-police officer that he worked with for the suicide hotline all recognized him from the sketch and the car and reported Bundy as a possible suspect. But the detectives were receiving up to 200 tips a day and thought it was unlikely that a law student would ever commit such heinous crimes. Oh, and I lied. I'm sorry. Hunters did eventually find the bodies of the two women from the Sammamish State Park. But at the same time, they also found remains of another victim also. So he liked to put everyone in the same spot. Suppose it made it easier to go back and visit. Exactly. Then in August of 74, he received a second acceptance to the University of Utah Law School. And so he moved to Salt Lake City. He was still dating his girlfriend, but she was staying in Seattle. And they would call each other often but apparently he was seeing like a bunch of other women at the same time of course he was yeah he found he wasn't that good at law school and other people were doing better than him and he was very disappointed in himself and what better way to get over that than to start murdering more people it's disgusting but (laughs) obviously the homicides stopped in washington and oregon and moved to utah and Colorado and Idaho. And again, he would travel hundreds of miles sometimes to hunt these women down. But the thing that I found interesting was that he started going after like teenagers. There was a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old. One of them was the daughter of the police chief. A bunch of 17-year-olds. There was a 12-year-old. He just like started going after these teenage girls, which was crazy. But one woman, Carol Duranch, met him. He identified himself as Officer Roslin of the Murray Police Department and told her that someone had attempted to break into her car, asked her to accompany him back to the station to file a complaint. And... She got in the car, and when she realized that he wasn't going toward the police station, he immediately pulled over and attempted to handcuff her. And as a result, I guess she was fighting back. He put the handcuffs on the same wrist, which allowed her to open the door and escape. So she got away, and that's very important. So remember that. But I guess he was so upset, he decided to go to a high school, and he wound up kidnapping a 17-year-old and killing her instead. He apparently was like waiting in the auditorium for someone to come out. He just was waiting. And they fa- wound up finding the key to the handcuffs from Durant's wrist at the auditorium because like, he was just waiting there. It's crazy. In November, his girlfriend called King County Police a second time after reading about the disappearances of women in Salt Lake City. And then she wound up calling Salt Lake City's sheriff's office to also talk about her suspicions they put Bundy's name on the suspect list and and his car but they said there was no forensic evidence to link him to the Utah crimes but he was on the list but in January of 75 he returned to Seattle after his final exams and spent a week with his girlfriend she never told him that she reported him three times to the police but she kept dating him which is confusing to me but and she made plans to come and visit him like that august or whatever so obviously 75 he continued going more into colorado area again had no trouble traveling like 
hundreds of miles for these murders. It's crazy. And that's probably one reason why he was so good at getting away with it for as long as he did. Right, right. Because why would he be traveling so far? Yeah, he went so far away from where his normal, quote-unquote, normal haunts were. His last confession was the murder of Susan Curtis, who vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo, which is about 45 miles south of Salt Lake City. And he recorded that moments before he entered the execution chamber. But many of the women's bodies from the Colorado area were never recovered, unfortunately. He did decide to get baptized into the Church of Latter-day Saints, which whatever, but then they excommunicated him once he arrested for kidnapping, which brings us to his first arrest. So if you recall, I talked about the girl at the ranch who was able to escape. So he was arrested because a highway patrol officer noticed he was cruising a residential area in his Beetle in the pre-dawn hours, and he was going pretty fast after he saw the patrol car. He also noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. So he pulled him over, he searched his car, he found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items that he assumed were burglary tools. And Bundy tried to explain what they were all for, whatever. But thankfully, a detective remembered a similar suspect and car description from the Durant kidnapping. And that Bundy's name was on the suspect list from his girlfriend's phone call a month before. They searched Bundy's apartment and found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn, which is where one of his victims was taken from, and also a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play, which is where he kidnapped that girl. But there wasn't enough sufficient evidence to detain him, so he was released and he admitted later that the searchers missed a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released so that no one could ever find them. Of course he did. Salt Lake City police then placed him on a 24-hour surveillance, and the detectives flew to Seattle to interview his girlfriend. She told them that the year prior to Bundy's Moved to Utah, she had discovered objects that she couldn't understand in her house and in Bundy's apartment. And these included crutches, a bag of plaster that he admitted to stealing from a medical supply house, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Additional objects included surgical gloves or an oriental knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment and a sack full of women's clothing. And again, she still dated him. I don't understand. And that he was perpetually in debt and that she suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. In September, he sold his beetle to a teenager, but the Utah police impounded it and FBI technicians dismantled it and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from one of the victim's bodies. And they also identified hair strands from two other victims, one that was murdered and the girl that was just kidnapped and got away. An FBI lab specialist concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three victims who had never met one another would be a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. Yeah, no duh. (laughs) Seriously. So they put him in a lineup. They had Durant bring him in. She immediately identified as Officer Rosalind and uh, witnesses from the school recognized him as the stranger in the auditorium, but there was insufficient evidence to link him to 
another victim whose body unfortunately was never found but there was enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault on Durant's case and he was freed on $50,000 bail paid by his parents and spent most of the time between indictment and trial in Seattle and living in his girlfriend's house. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in any of the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. In November, uh, three principal Bundy investigators met in Aspen, Colorado, and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. After the meeting, they all were pretty much convinced that Bundy was the one and only murderer that they were looking for. And they agreed that more hard evidence needed to be found before he could be charged with any of the murders. In February, he stood trial for Durant's kidnapping. On the advice of his attorney, he waived his right to jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and weekend deliberation, the judge found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, which included roadmaps, airline schedules, and social security card, and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with another murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 77. Yes. So that was the first time he escaped. Yes. He elected to serve as his own attorney, and as such, he was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. And during recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. And while he was shielded from the guards behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped out from the second story window. He injured his right ankle as he landed, but he was able to get rid of his clothes and change and he broke into a hunting cabin. He stole food and clothing and a rifle. And then he just went into the forest. He walked around aimlessly for a while. And eventually they did find him six days later. Yes. So, and he was he, rearrested. Yes. <laughs> so he went back to jail. <laughs> yes. Dumbass. So then by like late 1977, his impending trial had become a lot of the talk of the town in Aspen and he filed the motion for a change of venue to Denver. So the judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, he piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body, climbed into a crawl space, Broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife, changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet, walked out the front door to freedom. He stole a car and drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down. Passing motorists gave him a ride to Vail, which was about 60 miles to the east, and then he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. And then back at the jail, the skeleton crew did not discover his escape until noon the next day which is more than 17 hours later, and by then he was already in Chicago. But he didn't stay there for long. He didn't, and he messed up. He did. Yes, he did. He traveled by train from Chicago to Michigan, and then five days later he stole a car and drove to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus and arrived in Tallahassee, Florida, the morning of January 8th. 
He stayed for one night at a hotel before he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at a boarding house near Florida State University. And basically he was stealing and all that stuff for food and money and all that stuff. But then one week after his arrival, (laughs) he gained access to Florida State's Chi Omega sorority house through a rear door with faulty locking mechanism. And about 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned one girl with a heavy piece of oak firewood while she slept, crushing her skull. And then he choked her with a nylon stocking. And they said he ripped her underwear off with such force that friction burns were found on her thighs. So after he killed her, he walked across the hall and entered the room of another girl, beating her unconscious and strangling her. In what would become one of the key pieces of evidence against him in the trial, he bit deeply into her left buttock and through one of her nipples, severely severing it from her right breast. Using a bottle of hair mist, Levy had in the he raped her vaginally and anally so violently that it ruptured her internal organs. Holy crap. That's some rage. That's just absolute, utter rage. Seriously. Yeah. Jeez. Then he went into an adjoining room. He attacked another girl, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder. And then attacked another girl, I guess they shared a room, who just suffered a concussion, a broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. But they both survived the attack. He fled the scene, and he was spotted by sorority, another sorority sister who came through the back door and saw him as he made a run for it. And detectives were determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes with an earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing. That was crazy. Which is, yeah. Oh, but he's he wasn't done. So police converged on the sorority house and obviously were doing their thing. But he made his way to a duplex house eight blocks away. And he approached the apartment's basement window and climbed through under the cover of darkness. And he found another student asleep in her bed around 4 a.m. And he viciously attacked her, dislocating her shoulder, as well as fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. For unknown reasons, he pulled off his mask and dropped it on the bed. But that was his third mistake. Yep. The neighbors in the adjacent room overheard the racket and called the police, who discovered her lying on the bed badly beaten. In addition to the mask he had left behind, which also contained his hair, they also found semen stain on the bed. Though there was no evidence of sexual assault, which just showed he got off on this. On February 8th, he drove 150 miles east to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van. In a parking lot, he approached a 14-year-old girl and... Yeah, he was trying to obviously get her, but her older brother arrived and confronted him, so he backed off. But unfortunately, he went to Lake City Junior High School the following morning, and a 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was told by her teacher to retrieve a forgotten person in the teacher's car, and she never returned to class. Seven weeks later, they found her in a pig farrowing shed about 35 miles northwest of Lake City. And it showed that she had been raped before having her throat cut. I believe that was his last victim, a 12-year-old girl, which is very sad. So yeah, basically, eventually, because he didn't have a lot of cash to pay his rent and the police were closing in on him, he stole the car and fled Tallahassee. Three days later, he was stopped by Pensacola police officer near the Alabama state line. And he was under arrest. And that is the end of his murdering spree. So he was sent to Miami 
where he stood trial for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults. And it was covered by 250 reporters from five continents. And it was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. And even though he had court-appointed attorneys, he pretty much handled his own defense. And from the beginning, he sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusions. What a shock. Yeah, he was cocky. He thought he was better than everybody, that he could... But again, it was his charm. He would turn it on and that would be that. But basically, they were able to get castings of his teeth and they obviously had a forensic doctor compare and it was a perfect match. So yeah, the jury deliberated less than seven hours before convicting him to three counts of attempted first-degree murder, two counts of burglary the judge imposed the death sentence for the murder convictions. So he was found guilty of first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, and burglary, two counts of burglary. So he was given the death sentence. Six months later, a trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of the 12-year-old girl. He was found guilty once again after eight hours of deliberation. And he was given, I believe, another death penalty. Yeah. But during the penalty phase of that trial, he decided in the middle of the trial to take advantage of a Florida law that allowed a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge to constitute as a legal marriage. And so he married a girl that he like used to date like a long time ago, who had moved to Florida to be near him because she thought he was innocent. And so they got married and they had a, a con- some conjugal visits while he was in prison and she wound up getting pregnant. So he does have a child out there in the world who hides from the world because of who her father is, I'm sure. I don't blame her. Yeah. So he has a little girl, or she's not little anymore, obviously. She's born October of 81. Yeah, she's only a few months older than me. Yeah, she's yeah, she's not that far. Yeah, so she'll be 42 this year. That poor woman. But basically, after everything, he he did then start confiding to the police. I think he was trying to have them think he was crazy he was trying to deter his death and push it off by slowly giving them pieces of what they wanted to know but it didn't help him they sent him to the electric chair he was executed at 7 16 a.m on tuesday january 24th 1989 and his last words were directed to his attorneys jim and fred i'd like to give you give my love to my family and friends and apparently there was a cheer when he died and when the white hearse containing his body departed prison. So no one was very upset. But he talked to a lot of journalists and stuff like that. He really was just trying to prolong the inevitable. But it didn't work. Yeah. So that's him. And then, like I said, Elizabeth Kendall, or Copefler is her real last name, is one of the many people that wrote books about him. And the movie that we watched, which stars Zac Efron, Lily Collins, is called Extremely Wicked shockingly evil and vile, which is a ridiculously long title. But the reason why they chose that is because that's what the judge said to him when telling him that he was getting the death sentence. And the movie, I thought, and Mary, I know you and I talked about this when we talked about the Jeffrey Dahmer series and how by them doing these movies and these series are glorifying and sexualizing these murderers by using fairly good-looking actors. 
I said the difference here, and they said the reason why they chose Zach Efron is Zach Efron actually has similar or had. I know he's had some facial stuff done, but similar facial features to Ted Bundy, the very strong jaw and all that stuff. So he looks like him. And the reason why I don't feel like they were necessarily sexualizing it is because people couldn't believe that he would ever do something like that because he was so charming, so good looking. He was trying to be a lawyer. He played this game being funny and all this stuff. And people fell in love with him. Girls were obsessed with him because they just couldn't believe that he would ever do something like that. So I think by using Zac Efron, who is a very good looking man and a lot of women like him, they showed what it really was like. Me personally, I don't think Ted Bundy was that good looking, but the 70s was a different time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> but no, I thought the movie was very good. I was happy they didn't show any of the murders. They certainly implied it. Yeah, they definitely implied, but it was more of because it was from her perspective more. Yeah. It was about how he tried to act normal while he was still doing all these heinous things. Yeah. Which is even scarier. That's what he was doing. He tried to act like he was just some Joe Schmo when actual reality he was doing these heinous and disgusting things. So Yeah. I thought they did a good job with it. Yeah, I I agree. It's on Netflix if anyone wants to watch it. Yeah, that's how I saw it as well. I would say it's interesting that the perspective that they did this movie is from her perspective, in a sense. Even though you do follow him as well in the movie, mm -hmm. as you point out, it is in essence like from her perspective because, like you were saying, in a couple of scenes, you see he did attack someone, one of his victims, but... The context was that he admitted that, yeah, I did do a couple of things to a couple people, that that kind of thing. But otherwise, like, you only hear on screen that, like, he did this. He's been accused of this, that, and the other, which does fit the whole idea of, okay, this is from the outside perspective on the whole thing. Like, you're hearing this secondhand, thirdhand what this guy supposedly did, which at the time it was just supposed, like they still had to establish that, oh yeah, this is definitely our guy that we're looking for that did all these horrible things to all these poor, innocent women. I remember I was reading, there were some criticisms of the movie. I will say one criticism I read was that like some people felt that mm -hmm. Elizabeth Kendall was not a fully developed character in the movie almost. Which I see why they were criticizing that because I have to admit there were certain points in the movie where it felt like she's not really doing anything per se. Right. Yeah. In the movie, you don't even know that she's the one that called the cops about him until almost the end. She actually did it three times. Right. I would love to know why she still stayed with him. <laughs> I mean, I really would. But like... Love makes you do stupid things. I guess so. Love like, makes if... you do stupid things. Love makes you turn a blind eye to the things that you should never turn a blind eye to. But is it a blind eye when she called the cops three times and still stayed with him? You know what I mean? But she obviously was nervous about him. But I do agree, Liz, with what you said, because the way that they did her character definitely, I feel, wasn't complete because I do like that they went into the mental state of her i'm sure she was having breakdowns and she became an alcoholic and depressed and all this stuff but then it was just all of a sudden no oh, she's better now 
all right like she got married to someone else and but what yeah what happened and again i know they were trying to focus more on him than her she's a prominent part of this thing it was written by her so i'm gonna read the book i bought it so i am gonna try and see how she wrote about herself and then compare it to how they did it in the book and i can let you know my findings yeah you could always do a solo on it later yeah yeah depending on how long it takes for me to read it right <laughs> but uh, yeah when I, I remembered reading like some of the reviews because i just get curious sometimes you want to see what did reviewers think and whatnot because i certainly get curious about that sort of thing because sometimes and i'm sure some of you listeners feel the same way sometimes you read reviews to stuff you are going to watch or stuff that you recently watched and it's very fascinating to see how critics react to the same thing you saw and of course sometimes you agree with them and other times you definitely don't mm -hmm. and sometimes you do end up discovering certain reviewers that maybe have an interesting observation even if you don't necessarily agree with it but they do have interesting observations which is why i mentioned that criticism about how they felt that elizabeth kendall is like almost too passive and not a fully developed for lack of a better term character in the movie and reading that, I realized that I do get what they're saying, and I do agree with that, because there were certain parts of the movie where she felt almost like she's too passive and non-reactionary, when you would think that they would show her being more conflicted than she was. I don't know if that's like a criticism of Lily Collins, or if that's a criticism of the directing or the writing or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 No, I get that. I get that. Like I said, I'll read the book and see what it comes out to. But obviously, a lot of critical responses, again, about performances. In fact, what you just said, someone was criticizing her performance, saying she was reduced to a stock character. And then obviously, people didn't like it because they felt that it was glorifying him and did not address the impact of his crimes of, on his victims or their loved ones. But again, you have to think about this movie based on a book. You know, so I don't know, but it was shown at Sundance and then Netflix acquired the distribution rates. So again, if you want to see it also something else on Netflix is like the tapes of Ted Bundy, where he's actually talking to someone like a journalist and they were trying to get him to talk about the murders and stuff like that. It's really eerie to hear him like it, it's creepy. So I wouldn't recommend doing it at night watching that, but it's a couple of episodes if you want to look him up. I suggest yeah. you don't do it because you'll never <laughs> sleep again. Yeah. There are probably true crime junkies in the audience. So. True. This is true. You'll never sleep again. Yeah. Yeah. He's creepy. Yeah. He is creepy. I think he might be creepier than Dahmer. They have similarities in that like Dahmer was, and maybe it's the alcoholism. Yeah. But just like very, I don't know, like when you like if you watch like the like the tapes on Netflix, he's very calm as he talks about things. Yeah. Just very calm, which is eerie. And that reminds me a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer. Their crimes were different, but they have a lot of similarities, the two of them, which is creepy in a way. But they happened around the same time. All right. Anything else we want to mention? Not really. I think we covered everything that needs to be said. Did you like what you heard on our episode today? Well, then feel free to come back and listen to us again. You can find us on all different streaming sites, including Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Deezer, iHeartRadio, 
Spotify, you name it, we're there. And if you really like us, feel free to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Three Fates Decide. That's T-H-R-E-E Fates Decide. You can also email us at threefatesdecide at gmail.com. And check out our website at threefatesdecide.com to find other episodes, information about your three hosts, and all of our other links. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Three Fates Decide.